I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles here this morning to Psalm 34, and I'm going to invite uh, Dr. Frick Kruger to come and share God's Word with us this morning. And uh, let's open our hearts now as uh, we look to this great psalm. Thank you very much, Harry. It's an honor to be invited back. Uh, a little surprising, but I'm thankful to be here. Um, I think it's a great tradition uh, we have here at Summit where in the summer we allow sort of lay people to share a bit of the message as well. Um, it's such an honor to be able to, to share with you this morning. I almost think that after hearing from the um, Northwest Territories trip, you know what, I really don't have to be here. You guys can go home and we're good. This is enough of a message right there, having said that. Um, so yeah, just thank you. Thank you for having me. Before we get started, let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the freedom we have to be able to meet together as your people this morning. Thank you that you love us and care for us enough to hear our hearts and our concerns, and above all, desire to have a real relationship with us. Lord, help us to align our thoughts and lives with you every day. Jesus, please be with us this morning. Help us to share your message and open up your word for all the wonders that it contains. May we become less as you become more here this morning. In your holy name do we pray this. Amen. So when the opportunity came up again this summer to share a message as part of the summer series, I'm always excited to try and find out what are we going to cover as a church throughout the, uh, throughout the summer. Um, when I heard that we were going to go through the Psalms, I must admit that I was not super excited about the idea. Um, I went through the Psalms as part of my personal devotions last year, and going through all 150 of them, if I had to sum it up then, I would say that, you know what, the psalmist talks a lot about how bad life is, how hard it is, kill all my enemies, um, and then in the end, how good God is. Now, I know that that is not a true reflection of what the psalms are about, but that was the feeling I had at the time. And, and thinking about it, my first thought was, how is one supposed to build a sermon around something like that? Um, so, obviously, we need to look at the psalms in a different way. We cannot use and interpret it the same way we do the history books of the Bible or the letters of Paul. Um, the Psalms are different. The Psalms deal with poetry and feelings. And um, that's not something that really comes naturally to me. Um, I needed to change my outlook and my approach to the Psalms to try and find the beauty in it. Now, just how far I had to go to, to, to see the beauty in it just became um, clear to me on a recent family trip to Oregon over spring break. As part of our trip, we had a couple of nights in, in, in Portland, and we told the kids that, you know what, this is your part of the holiday. You decide what we're going to do on our couple of days in, in Portland. Now, I thought that, you know what, we'll probably go to a basketball game, go visit all the food trucks. Um, but on the Saturday morning, a rainy Saturday morning, we were getting on the commuter train. Simone organized the day for us. And here we are, all four, four of us, going to the Portland Art Museum. Now, that was nowhere near on my agenda for this trip. Um, so, but as the day progressed and we were able to look at, at um, exhibits from um, art from ancient China, all the way through to stop motion animation things from movies like The Box Trolls, at the end of the day, they had to drag me out of there to go to the food trucks. Now, who knew that art could connect with emotions and feelings? Uh, 
Have you ever wondered why we sing song in church? Sing songs in church? Now I know that it's part of worship and it's part of tradition, but do any of you sing songs at your staff meetings? Uh, have you ever thought about when you look at big sporting events when they see the, sing the national anthems? You'll think nothing of it, of it seeing big burly men, hockey, rugby players crying like little babies when they zoom into the picture. Um, I think God that created us uh, and wired our brains just know how important that part is for our daily functioning. Now, Timothy Keller, in writing about the Psalms in this book, Songs of Jesus, writes this. The Psalms were the divinely inspired hymn book for public worship of God in ancient Israel. Because Psalms were not simply read but sung, they penetrated the minds and imaginations of the people as only music can do. We are not simply to read the Psalms, we are to be immersed in them so that they profoundly shape how we relate to God. The Psalms are the divinely ordained way to learn devotion to our God. Now the Psalms are even more personal than just corporate worship. It is intensely real, intensely personal. Uh, personal. One of the ancient church fathers, Anthanasius, wrote this, Whatever your particular need or trouble, for this, from the same book, the Psalms, um, you can select a form of words to fit it so that you learn the way to remedy your ill. And then Keller further writes, We are in a sense to put them inside our own prayers, or perhaps put our prayers inside them, and approach God in that way. In doing this, the Psalms involve the speaker directly in new attitudes, commitments, promises, and even emotions. Well, was I ever wrong? So now that we've established that we have to look and use the Psalms in a different manner, let us get started with our Psalm for the day, Psalm 34. Psalm 34 of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. So let us start at the beginning of the psalm. In the heading we hear this odd story as part of the introduction. 
Now, interesting to note that Psalm 34 is one of only 13 psalms that seek in the heading to connect to a specific life event of David. Now, why was this mentioned in the heading? So it may be worthwhile to go and look at this event and to try and gain some insight into not just the events, but also the possible emotions David might have experienced as he was writing the psalm. To look at this, we have to go back to 1 Samuel 21, verse 10 to 15. Now, a little bit of background before we start reading it. David has just heard from his good friend Jonathan that Saul intended to kill him. David is fleeing from Saul and ends up in the land of the Philistines before King Ashith of Gath. Now, there's been some speculation as to why in this psalm it speaks of Abimelech, and in this passage we hear of Ashish. It is thought that Abimelech may have been the title for the Philistine king, just as Pharaoh was for the Egyptians and Caesar was in Rome. Now, the Philistines knew of David, um, and they did not appreciate him at all. Uh, if we read the preceding passage, we see that David is actually traveling with the sword of Goliath, the Philistine giant he defeated in the well-known story, when he arrives in Gath. To say that David was in a precarious position would be a serious understatement. So how would David, the hero that defeated the giant, and the one of whom we hear that he was a man out of, after God's own heart, react in this situation? So let us read the passage. That day David fled from Saul and went to Ashish king of Gath. But the servants of Ashish said to him, Isn't this David the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Ashish king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence and while he was in their hands he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beards. Ashish said to his servants, Look at the man. He is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so sure of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Now, I do not know about you, but this does not sound like something a year of faith and a man after God's own heart should be doing. Surely David should be able to trust in God and, and make sure or, or, and know that things will get better but yet he acts in this manner. Now, this sounds more like something me and you would do when we are confronted with really difficult situations. We sometimes get paralyzed if we look at other people, people that we think are more holy or have their things more together, so much so that we get paralyzed by looking at them. We look at how good they are and feel that we are not good enough to have a personal relationship with the living God. Um, I think that if we look at this, um, if, if the great David of who we read about so much dealt with fear, doubt, and shame and acted like this, surely we can all identify in some way, shape, or form. Perhaps there is a lot in this psalm for us to relate to with our own dealings with God. So, David starts the psalm off with praise. In verses 1 to 3, David is personally praising God and is then inviting others to join him in that praise. The psalm in the beginning follows a clear pattern of personal praise and worship, which is then followed by corporate praise and worship. David is inviting the greater audience to join him in this praise to the Almighty God. We see throughout the psalm that this audience is likely poor and afflicted. They are the down-and-out crowd. All of us who have ever felt this way are called to praise God and to put our pride and boasting away from ourselves by placing it where it belongs, at the feet of the Almighty God who loves us and cares for us. 
It is interesting to note that there are some similarities to the Sermon on the Mount and the blessed are statements Jesus made in that sermon. When we are feeling poor, useless, run down, weak and at the end of our ropes to the point that we are acting like madmen, David tells us to put our praise and trust in something bigger than ourselves. We are to put our trust in the living God. Now in verses 4 to 7, David shares some of the reasons why he's able to praise God. Now David grew up hearing about all the stories of his ancestors and and their deliverance from Egypt. He heard the stories of Abraham, Jacob, Moses, and Joshua. Surely any of these stories which he is so familiar with would be more than enough reason to praise God about. But let's see what he says in verse 4. He says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. David shares a personal reason as to why he can praise God. He called to the Lord and he was delivered from his fears. He sought a restored relationship with God and was rewarded by an answer from God and a deliverance from his fears. This may be part of the reason why why God called David a man after his own heart. David knew God personally. He was in a relationship with the living God. It wasn't hearsay for him, but intensely personal. And God desires that personal relationship with all of us. That is why he sent his son to die on the cross to pave the way. God wants to relate to me and you deeply, like a genuine experience of loving connection. He wants to hear of our fears, joys, angers, and concerns. That is why he gave us the Psalms, to help us to put those feelings into words. God wants to connect with us emotionally. He wants this relationship to be real. Now David goes further on and says that because of his personal experience of deliverance, others who sought that same restored relationship with God will be radiant and not have any shame in their faces. God will draw near to them if they seek this personal relationship with him. Their faces will be radiant with joy in a tangible, visible way. Now David uses further examples as to illustrate that God can be trusted. He talks about the poor man who called, and the Lord heard him, and about the angel of the Lord who encamps around those who fear him. Just as David has personally experienced the saving grace of the living God, others who fear or live in an de- attitude of dependence on God will experience God's provision and protection. Now it's important to note that this is not the fear of being afraid of God, although I think that if we, any one of us were able to see, ever able to see God in all of his glory, we will be intensely afraid. But it's more dependence and a reverence for God that will lead to this assurance and deliverance. If we are in a relationship with God and trusting in him, he will never let us go. This is illustrated by the wording in verse 8 where we see, Taste and see that the Lord is good. This implies that we should personally trust and experience God and that we will not be disappointed. God will deliver us and we will lack no good things. If we fear him or live in an attitude of dependence and do not trust in our own strength like the lions do in this psalm, we will lack nothing. Think of it like this. My wife Berenda always says that you should never trust the thin cook. A good chef will always taste and see that the food they are serving is good. David here invites his hearers not to just think about God, to engage rationally with him, although that is intensely important, but to engage relationally with God. We need to take this step and trust in him and seek his will and then be aware and alert to see of the ways that he will provide. 
Now, that is sometimes difficult for us to see in the Western world where we think that we're able to do all of these things on our own. Uh, we do not need any help, all by ourselves. Um, now, faith requires knowing and assent, but then it requires a further very important step, trust. This is the piece that will make it real, the trust or the try-it piece. Now, I want to share a bit of a personal story that illustrates some of this. Now, before we came to Canada 15 years ago, um, we spent a year and a half in a medical mission in Malawi through the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa in partnership with the Church of Central Africa Presbyterian. Uh, Brenda and myself were very early in our, both our careers, and with five-month-old Stefan, um, we left South Africa um, to travel to Malawi, which is a small country in Central East Africa at the bottom end of the Great Rift Valley. Now, we drove up to Malawi in three days with our big white Isuzu truck and a big white off-road trailer that was donated to us by our previous church. Um, now, we were very naive to start out with, and we didn't know all the details about crossing four sets of border posts and the ever-present military roadblocks that were probably about every 200 kilometers, um, which is so common in that part of Africa. Now... We finally, after the few days, arrived into Malawi, and that's where the saga started for our temporary importation of our vehicles. Now, as we were working for a Malawian church, the understanding was that as long as we were using the vehicles in the mission, that there would be no problems with the importation of them. This has been the case for all the missionaries in the previous 60 years that have been involved in Koma, and usually what would happen is that the administration of the hospital and the mission would take care of all the paperwork. We were just there to serve. Now, we were able to get our temporary importation permit and settled into working where we were, but this thing was never really resolved. And unfortunately, after months, um, this, this whole thing has escalated so much so that through paperwork submitted through the hospital, it now looked like we were trying to evade taxes. So much so that we had to go to... Um, that I had to go to one of the heads of the Malawian CRA um, and, and talk to him about that. And, and there was a very real possibility that I would spend some time in a Malawian prison. Now, I still remember it was a Monday morning, it was raining a little bit, when the other missionaries gathered around in our house and prayed for us. And I said goodbye to Brenda and a young Stefan, not sure if I would be home that evening. Um, with a Malawian man with us to help with interpretation, we left Nkoma in this big white Isuzu truck, big white trailer, big South African license plates um, to go and speak with the taxman. Now, Nkoma is a mission station about 60 kilometers south of Lilongwe, the capital. And in, to get to Lilongwe and back, we had to cross one of these military checkpoints. Um, the, the purpose behind the checkpoints was that you would drive up to them, there'd be roadblocks, soldiers with automatic weapons, and they would stop you and ask, well, where are you heading? Are all your papers in order? And if everything was fine, you would just wave through. And we never had problems with this because we always had a temporary importation permit. Now, we went to a long way, met with the tax official, and things went better than we thought. I didn't have to go directly to jail. I didn't not have to collect $200. And... Um, <laughs> And at the end of this, um, he actually gave us a way as to how to do the paperwork in the correct way that everything is legal and above board, the way it was always supposed to be. Now, we were extremely thankful about that. Um, and, and before we left, I asked, the, um, I asked the official, you know, could you give me another temporary importation permit so that I can get through this roadblock on the way home? And he looked at me and he said, no, can't help you. 
Um, so I go, okay. Um, how am I supposed to get through this roadblock, I asked. And I said, well, pray to your God and he will provide. So, okay. Um, so we left there and I, the Malawian man and myself sat in the truck and we prayed. And, um, and after we prayed, uh, the Malawian man told me about this little back road, dirt road that you could take through the bush and then eventually come out onto this main road and then head back to Nkoma. We just bypassed this whole military checkpoint. So that's a good idea. So we, we head out, our big white Isuzu truck, big white trailer, big South African license plates, and we're, we're driving on this dirt road. And, and things are going well, and, and we're, we're getting close. We can almost see the main road. And, uh, and as we're getting close to the road, out of the bush jumps a soldier, big weapon, stops us. So we park the vehicle, and, and he walks over to the Malawian man and starts talking, and I'm sitting my hands on the steering wheel, trying to not sweat too much, look too, too guilty or anxious. And, um, and they're talking for about five minutes or so, and after five minutes, the Malawian man says, no, we can go. Um, so we go away without spinning the wheels too much and uh, join the main road and start heading back south. And, and after a few minutes, after my heart rate sort of settled down a little bit, I asked the Malawian man, so what happened? So the Malawian man tells me that, you know what, he was talking to this guy and this soldier was just bemoaning the fact that he had to spend his whole day sitting on this back road trying to catch people, trying to bypass the roadblock, smuggling things, and that nothing ever happened. Um, now, I believe that God miraculously closed that soldier's eyes that morning. Uh, he could not have missed the big white truck and trailer with the big South African license plates, but God made that a miracle that day. And that was the same as what the Malawian tax official told us to pray, who was not a believer. Now, this is but one personal story amongst many in our own lives. And I think when we look back at these stories, it should be hard for us to doubt that God is good and that he provides and cares for us. I would be willing to bet that each and every one of you here that are in a personal relationship with Jesus has some of their own stories for yourselves. They will look different than ours, uh, but they are there. They are real. Uh, being in a relationship with God will lead to these stories, and we sometimes just need to be reminded of those. Just as David is looking back at his personal encounters and letting those shape his worship and trust in the living God for future events, so we should trust in God and have this personal, personal relationship with him. If we lose sight of these events, it is easy to fall into doubt, despair, and depression. That is why we need to be reminded. Now, I'm a family physician by trade, and in my day-to-day -day work, I can see firsthand the prevalence and the impact of chronic disease. One of the most common and severe diseases I see on a regular basis is in the group of mood disorders, which includes anxiety and depression. This is something that has been around us for as long as there's been humans on earth. Just compare the story of Elijah and the Bible after the prophets of Baal. It is estimated that one in three Canadians will have an episode of depression in their lifetime. It affects all people in all walks of life. Um, the suffering is both physical and emotional and also affects their ability to function the way that they would want to in work, play, school and at home. Now one interesting piece of research was published recently. The findings of the largest international study to compare brain volumes in people with and without major depression were published in the medical journal Molecular Psychiatry recently. Fifteen research institutes around the world, including from the US, Europe and Australia, collaborated to combine the results of their existing smaller studies 
comparing the hippocampuses of depressed and healthy people. This allowed them to examine the MRI data of brain data of 8,927 people, 1728 of them who had major depression and the rest of them who were healthy. Now the researchers found that 65% of the depressed study participants had recurrent depression and it was these people who had smaller hippocampuses which is near the center of the brain and is involved with long-term memory, forming new memories and connecting emotions to these memories. So what this means is that at times in our lives when things are going bad, we would normally go to our hippocampuses and access our home movies or memories and use those experiences to deal with the current situation. The coping mechanisms that we worked on and was proven to work in the past is an access to help to deal with the current situation we're dealing with. In people with chronic depression, they do not have that ability to access that part of their brain. They need to be treated with multiple modalities, including medication, counseling, and lifestyle changes to again, again enlarge their hippocampuses and allow them to function normally. Now, the success rates for treatment is quite high, and studies have proven that their hippocampuses will actually enlarge again with proper treatment. Perhaps this is part of what David is writing about here, and part of what the rest of the Psalms is about. We need to constantly try and remember and be reminded of what God has done for us in our lives. Being reminded of this personal experiences and relationship with the living God is part of what's keeping us healthy emotionally. That is one of the reasons why we meet weekly as a church and why small groups are so important. We need constant reminders of how good God is and what, about what he has done for us. Now it is not saying that we will not become sick, depressed, anxious or alone. But God, through his personal relationship with us, will never let us go. We are allowed to approach him in our brokenness. That is why he gave us the Psalms. God connects with us emotionally, and through this constant reminders and connection, he wants to take care of us. Look at what David writes in verse 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. God wants to meet us where we are and care for us. He wants a real relationship with us. Now, David changes his approach in the little, a little in the final part of the psalm in verses 11 to 22. Here, David takes on the role of teacher. Verse 11 says, Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, dot, dot, dot. So following, there's a list of instructions that David gives to his children or people. Now, this is probably the part where most people will say that they understand this a bit better. To fear or to be afraid of God means that if we do not do these lists of things, God will come down and hit us with lightning bolts. Or, opposite, saying that if I were to do all of these things, God will owe me his love because I kept up my end of the bargain. It is sad that it is both of these attitudes that unfortunately shapes such a lot of people's perception about religion nowadays. These attitudes do nothing for dependence or relationship. So why does David spend the second half of the psalm writing about rules and regulations? He talks about teaching us the fear of the Lord. David wants us to be aware of the actions and the situations that will be beneficial to cultivating this dependent relationship with God. What are the things that we should or should not do that will allow us to have a deeper, more meaningful relationship with God? Remember that God wants to have a deeper personal relationship with you and me. He has provided the way through the blood of his Son, Jesus Christ, already. 
if we have accepted the sacrifice, we can have the same relationship with God. But why rules again then? Just think about this. This November, I'll be married to my wonderful wife, Brenda, for 20 years. 20 years ago, we promised each other before God that we loved each other and would stand by each other and that we would be faithful to each other. We are in a strong relationship through the grace of God. Now, do I deserve this relationship because I'm keeping the rules? Surely not. Um, but if I were to be unfaithful to my wife, would that be beneficial to the health of our marriage relationship? Definitely not. Breaking that rule severely damages the marriage relationship. Sure, we would be able to, through the grace of God, to overcome something like that, but it'll leave a scar on the relationship. It is not in either of our individual or the common interest of the marriage relationship to be unfaithful. It is more than just following rules. I believe it is the same way with the rest of the psalm and with all other instruction in the Bible. David is teaching us the things we should do to cultivate this relationship. Now, my dad always has a saying, when you do not know how something works, you'll always say RTFM. It stands for Read the Freaking Manual. <laughs> now, God created us. He knit us together in our mother's womb. He knows how we work and function. He made us amazing physical, emotional, relational, spiritual beings. And God craves a relationship with us. But in order for that relationship to thrive, there are certain things that need to be in place for it to thrive. That is why he gave us the manual. In it, we can learn about God's love for us and his desire to spend time with us. We can also learn about the best practices to foster that relationship. We can learn what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. As the worship team is coming up, I want to share you with this image. God is standing before you and me this morning. He's having his hand outstretched, inviting you to a life of love, caring, adventure, highs and lows. A life where we can trust in him and where we can make amazing memories. A life where we can see how he does the miraculous, not just in our lives, but in lives of those around us. What is stopping you today from taking his hand? and joining him in this adventure. Amen.